This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I want you to picture a map. A map that to me explains just how vulnerable Kurdish people are right now. This map is like a jigsaw puzzle with Turkey and Syria and Iraq all fitting together just so. But where Syria meets Turkey, there's a whole other map. A map that doesn't have official borders, doesn't have official status. These Kurdish islands separated not by water, but by land. It's referred to by Kurds by its Kurdish name, Rojava, which means west. Jenna Krajewski traveled to Rojava, reported from there. I read one description that said it wasn't just west, it was the land where the sun sets, <laughs> which is kind of romantic when it you is. think about it. It's very romantic. And in fact, I think from the get-go, it was founded on these kind of romantic ideals of here's this place where Kurds can, after four decades, here's where we can really play out our dreams of, you know, what a Kurdish society would look like. Rojava was only founded a few years back, but it's an attempt to correct history. When European powers divided up the Middle East 100 years ago, the Kurds were supposed to have their own land. Instead, they got caught inside those bigger puzzle pieces. And that betrayal, I mean, people talk a lot about betrayal of the Kurds. I, that has stuck with Kurds throughout the region. Picture yourself as a Kurd inside this puzzle. You could be in Turkey, where Kurdish kids were kept from speaking their native language in school. And even the word Kurd was officially banned until 30 years ago. You could be in Syria, where Kurds weren't allowed to become citizens. Or you could be in Iraq, where Saddam Hussein actually gassed the Kurds with chemical weapons. You're imagining this idea where, to me, to be Kurdish is to be under the influence of all of these nation-states that are trying to deny my existence. And that's terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying. I mean, this, you know, and that is at the foundation of all of these different projects of Kurdish autonomy or independence. You look at Rojava now and you think it's really under peril. This experiment can't possibly succeed. But if you look at the movement that inspired it for the past 40 years, it has it has changed, it has grown, it has evolved. This is a long-term goal for Kurds and I don't think that there's a chance that they're going to give up on the idea of autonomy, on the idea of rights. Rojava, this western territory, this land where the sun sets in the northeast of Syria. For many Kurds, it was a start. Maybe it still is. It's hard to know whether to talk about it in the past or present tense. Rojava's status is changing before our eyes. So today on the show, 
Jenna's going to tell me what she learned when she traveled there to explain what the military operations now are really putting at risk. It's not just people getting killed. It's an idea, a concept of home. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To understand Rojava, you really need to understand the story of the man behind this ad hoc country, behind the idea of Rojava. His name is Abdullah Ojalan. Ojalan is a larger-than-life figure for the Kurds. He started planning for a Kurdish state as a young man. He was living in Turkey then. And his quest, it was violent. The group he founded, the PKK, it's classified as a terrorist organization by both Turkey and the U.S. Turkey's relationship with Ojalan, it's helped to define the broader Kurdish fight, especially after Turkish officials arrested Ojalan in the 90s. Probably the defining moment, although I hesitate to do that as, a, as an American reporter, but a lot of people say that this is the defining moment, is the capture of Ojalan. And it was this really sort of spectacular event. Turkish television showed videotape of Ercalan aboard the plane from Kenya with the special forces who captured him. There are photos of him and the airplane being taken. He was in Kenya at the time being taken back to Turkey where he is just, you know, he looks defeated. The Turkish agents celebrated as they brought Abdullah Ercalan back on a small private jet. He lay bound and blindfolded next to them. He was seen as the number one terrorist target by the Turkish state, originally sentenced to death, and then Turkey did away with the death penalty. So now he's in prison for life. He's on an island? He's on an island. He's mostly in solitary confinement. But from prison, he has had an extraordinary influence over Kurds across the region, but but mostly in Turkey, really significantly in Turkey. And so he's published these writings about what uh, Kurdish society should look like, what the government should look like, what the judiciary should look like, women's involvement. And these have been massively influential in the movement in Turkey and in Rojava. And people who sort of see the idea of Rojava as a utopian vision talk a lot about how Ojalan talks about feminism, how women should be a major part of the power structure. In fact, if you're leading one of these states, a canton, it's one woman and one man leading each one. And how part of the agreement between the Kurdish regions is that there's a right to a clean environment. It sort of sounds it sounds utopian on its face when you when you think about it. I wonder how did he come to these ideas while he was imprisoned? Well, nobody has really detailed insight into what Ojalan's life is like in prison or what his thought process is like in prison. So you get these letters, you get these this writing, and you interpret it. So he will say that he re- you know, read Benedict Anderson, 
whose book Imagined Communities is a critique of nationalism and the nation state. And by reading that, he came to the conclusion that the injustice in the Middle East or the world comes from these sort of artificial nation states that burden people with an identity that they don't relate to and set them up to fight against people that they have plenty in common with and that Kurds for a long time who wanted an independent Kurdistan should instead step back and say, maybe what we need is a place in this region where we're from, where we can exercise our rights and speak our language and run for office, but we don't need these borders, right? And we don't need a president and a prime minister. We just need autonomy and self-determination and a good relationship with the governments that are next to us. It sounds radical, like almost anarchist. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think it is, you know, taken on its face. And I think that one of the reasons that it was so well adjusted adapted in a place like Rojava is because war is, in a way, you know, in a way, war is chaotic, right? So a lot of what you saw, the sort of manifestation of these ideals, sharing your crops, if you're a farmer, with your neighbors down the street, for example, you know, that is outlined in the, in the governing document of Rojava, the social contract, right? But you, you know, I met a farmer who said, no, I've never read the social contract, but huh. come on, there's a trade embargo. This is war. ISIS is right over that hill. If I don't give something to my neighbor, then they're going to starve. So in some ways, these radical ideas to stakeholders, they don't feel like losing something because the region has already lost so much. I think that's right. And I think also a lot of people have been thinking about and studying these Ojalan ideologies for so long. And have internalized them as being, you know, the best way forward, not just for Kurds in the Middle East, but for the Middle East in general, for the world. This idea that if you look at the region in which they live and the oppression that they've suffered under these central states and the wars that they've been forced to fight because of these borders, that they'll look at that and say, well, that's clearly the wrong way to go. Hmm. We need to... We need to do something different. We need to do something better. Here's an opportunity for us, not just to try this radical Kurdish experiment, but to really kind of build something that could be a better model for, you know, government, for society in this part of the world. So with the ideas of Ojalan at the core of their governing doctrine, Rojava was born. It grew up along the border with Syria because civil war there meant suddenly land was available. So Rojava was established five years ago, essentially, and the guiding document is called the Social Contract. That lays out the way that the government is formed. It lays out certain economic principles. Um, the most important thing about Rojava really is the way that it's governed. And it's governed by these local councils, each of which has or is hoped to have, you know, as much power as the other so that even though there is, for instance, you know, a president and a co-president of these cantons, the president and co-president do not have unending authority over the local councils. And the local councils must have representation of different ethnic groups, um, different religious groups, and women alongside men. So that is really the guiding principle of Rojava is that the people 
have power over what happens, and the power is localized. In Rojava, women were explicitly part of the political experiment. They were trained to fight. They battled with and detained members of ISIS. I met with a group there when I was there who were being trained as security forces. And they had women, all women, and they came from all different backgrounds. Some of them had university education. Some of them were in their 40s and had three kids. And hmm. it was it was an all-hands-on-deck situation because it was a war. But it was also kind of, it was also important to the Rojava project because by having those women as part of the security forces, it was living up to this part of the social contract. Showing the world what Rojava stood for was important to its leaders, not only because it made for good PR, though it did do that, but because it was also helping to change the narrative of their Ojalan-inspired teachings. So there was this feeling also among the Kurds in Rojava that they were changing the reputation of sort of Ojalan-inspired Kurds. They were no longer being seen as terrorists by the rest of the world. They were seen as freedom fighters or even heroes because they were fighting ISIS. So in some ways, do you see that as a success of Rojava, where it's changed how people see this group that they once saw as a terrorist organization? I think so. And that was one of the things or one of the reasons that I was a little skeptical when I first went, because I had spent so much time reporting on the PKK in Turkey and understanding that while the PKK was the clearest avenue to gaining rights and recognition for Kurds inside of Turkey, it had also become, you know, a, a liability in a lot of ways. You had this generation of Kurdish politicians whose legitimacy was constantly being questioned because of their ties to the PKK. And yet Ojalan was a larger-than-life figure who loomed over everything. And you could look at that as, wow, they have this heroic figure who has helped them shape the society, and isn't that great? Or you could look at it like... Well, he has, he's a little bit like a dictator. I mean, they a little bit can't get out of the gaze of this man. And so in Turkey, you would hear these stories a lot. People who would say, I, I wish that we could proceed with the sort of legacy of the PKK, but separate ourselves from it and have, you know, a more, have an easier time being Kurdish politicians, being Kurdish academics, being Kurdish activists. So when I heard that there was this Ojalan-inspired, you know, quote-unquote utopia in northern Syria, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just completely won over by the promises of, fem you know, feminism and seeing female fighters on the battlefield and all of that. And I tried to remember that the PKK was a much more complicated um, and storied organization than that. But is it too starry-eyed to look at Rojava and look at it as an attempt to run a country a different way? I mean, I'm curious how how the Kurds in Rojava treated Arabs in Rojava, you know? Like, what is it true that this was always the best government for everyone? Right. No. And Rojava was, is deeply flawed and has been criticized for a number of really legitimate things. One of them is the participation of Arabs, of 
Christians, of other minorities, and saying it's a little bit um, tokenism, that they don't actually have any real power in the PYD, the, um, the political party. I spoke to Kurds who were in Iraqi Kurdistan because they felt like they had no authority uh, in PYD-controlled areas because either previously they had supported other Kurdish parties in Syria and so they were viewed with some kind of with suspicion. So yes, it is really important not to romanticize what's going on. And it's really important to be aware of all of the criticism and all of the flaws and all of the um, changes that needed to happen in order for it to actually live up to the standards that are outlined. But I think it's also important to be aware of the extreme circumstances in which this was taking place and be aware of the potential that it had, you know, not not just for Kurds in the region, but for the region as a whole. And it was young and I I hate to refer to it in the past tense because it still exists, even though it's Mm. being attacked, but um, young and fragile and possibly never going to succeed. And yet it really was this vision for something so different that you can't help but look at it and feel like it deserves some sort of support and attention. When American officials went on TV this weekend to talk about the conflict between Turkey and Syria and the Kurds, they used very specific language. The Secretary of Defense didn't call the Kurds our allies. He called them partners. Jenna says that distinction, it's meaningful. The relationship between Kurds all across the region and America, I mean, it is complicated and fraught because the U.S. has often named Kurds as allies and almost always in a sort of in a military light. Right. So leading up to the invasion in 2003, the Kurdish situation in northern Iraq was used as a justification or one of the justifications for going in. And then once we were in there during the occupation, they were really touted as our allies. And the success of Iraqi Kurdistan is kind of evidence of our success freeing them from Saddam. But that has had its limits. And you saw one example of that in 2017 when Iraqi Kurdistan had a referendum for independence, and the U.S. didn't support that. They supported the central state, as they always have Hmm. more than the Kurds. Um, And then, of course, in Syria, the military alliance, which was very important in fighting ISIS, that alliance between the U.S. and Kurds stops once Kurds try to shift from a kind of military acumen into political development. Why? Well, I just don't think that the U.S. wants to go into battle with the Turkish allies in supporting a project of Kurdish autonomy. Fighting ISIS is one thing, but recognizing the value of these Kurdish political systems and sacrificing your relationships with the Turkish state, with the Iraqi state, potentially, in doing that, I just, that just doesn't seem feasible. That doesn't seem like something the U.S. would want to do. And time and time again, they've shown that they're not interested in in really doing that. I wonder what you think we lose when we allow a place like Rojava to be erased. That's a really good question. I think 
we lose, we further lose the ability to argue that our our greatest intention in the Middle East is to support democracy, is to support women. I think lose a lot of the legitimacy of that argument. That's one of the things that I wanted people to recognize um, is to look at the look at Kurds not just in Syria, but across the region as being people not entirely defined by their relationship with the U.S., um, not entirely looked at as military allies or as great fighters, right? But as people who have visions, you know, for what they want their region to look like and what they want their role to be in the region that they are pretty determined to follow through on with or without U.S. supports. Jenna Krajewski, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Jenna Krajewski is a reporter at The Fuller Project. It's a news organization that reports on issues that most impact women. You can follow her and the organization's work at fullerproject.org. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mara Silvers, Jason DeLeon, and Mary Wilson. I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.